Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4:23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. into the Word today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, as we continue in our series, Questions on the Journey to the Cross. Today, I want to ask the question, what is it that makes us happy? What is it that makes us happy? This is not a question that that Jesus asked. We're going to get to that question that Jesus asked in a minute. But there was a, a a group of researchers that were asking that question. You know, there's, there's things and circumstances in life that, that always hit us. And uh, the question, what is it that makes us happy, I think is relevant to each and every one of us. In 2016, uh, a Harvard uh, group began a study uh, that was published in a, a book called um, Happiness 101. And uh, this, this secular study sought to determine what are the, what are the metrics, what are the, the actual uh, physical things in our lives that make us happy, that give us joy, that give us satisfaction, that that bring us to a place of happiness. And it took um, people who have uh, kind of been diagnosed with anxiety or or some level of depression. So it was a group of of people who needed, uh, had a felt need for happiness, need to move from the position that they're in to the position they're going, they want to be. And they sought to, um, to use these different uh, stimuli to, to make them happy. They took three different groups. The first group was a group that uh, they, they had just li- or four different groups. One just lived normal life, right? To see if anything would improve. It's kind of a control group. The, the second group was one that for, for two weeks, all that they did, kind of the, the filled their schedule was all of the things that they liked to do. From playing golf, to going on vacation, to, um, to binge watching the favorite show on Netflix, to death scrolling on their phone, right? Whatever it was, uh, they could do whatever they wanted to do that made them feel good, right? And so for, for two weeks, they filled their calendar with that. And the researchers were gonna see if that brought about happiness in them. The second group uh, did all that they could to help the world, right? So they were kind of the environmental group. We're gonna, we're gonna clean up the parks. We're gonna go along the roadside, pick up trash. We're gonna, um, we're gonna give money to, um, to the national parks. We're gonna uh, volunteer at, at the parks. We're gonna do all of the things that help make our world a more green society. We're gonna recycle and we're gonna do all those things. Does this lead to happiness? And the third group, or the fourth group, their entire schedule was built around helping others. Was built on volunteering at, at, at uh, humanitarian organizations, was, was built around um, 
uh, helping somebody across the street, helping somebody at a grocery store that needed help. Uh, their schedule was, was built around selflessly helping one another. You can probably guess what the results of this study were because I'm using it in a sermon. But, uh, but the, the results were the only one that actually moved the needle in people's lives was, was the selflessly giving of themselves to help others in humanity. What does this say about our own lives, about our own story, about our own posture towards God? In our text today, we see the story of two different people. We see the story of uh, the disciples coming to Jesus with a request. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? That's the question that we're gonna look at today. And the second story, we see a blind beggar one who doesn't know Jesus from anybody else, has never had a conversation with Jesus, but he comes to Jesus with a request after Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? You see, these are word-for-word questions used in uh, subsequent passages. There's no, no coincidence that, that Mark uses these, the same question that Jesus asks word-for-word in these two passages. He is trying to connect these two stories together thematically and trying to teach us a lesson through that connection. So when we look at these two stories side by side, as we read this, the word of God, we ask ourselves, what is Mark trying to communicate to us by tying these two passages together? Side by side, they both want something from Jesus. The disciples are asking the question to say, when you're in glory, when you are, have rise to power, can we sit at your right and your left? Can we be in a position of authority with you? Whereas the blind beggar asks simply to to have sight. What's the difference between these two characters and what's Mark trying to teach us? So as we dive into the word of God, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, which I would encourage you uh, to bring your Bibles and not just rely on the the Bible on the screen because I think it's important to underline stuff, to highlight stuff in your Bible, to write notes in the Bible. And also, oftentimes preachers will stop their their reading of scripture before difficult passages so that you don't have to, uh, so they don't have to to deal with those difficult passages. Um, I try not to do that, but sometimes... Sometimes it's inevitable. So I want you to be able to read in context. And if you're like, if you have questions about the context around it, come and find me, let's talk. Um, so I just encourage you um, to have your own Bible so you can read before and read after and read the, read the whole context of, of the scripture. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn Mark chapter 10, three, uh, 32 through 52. It says this. I re- I'm reading from the New International Version. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, they being the disciples. Um, The disciples were walking with Jesus on their way up to Jerusalem. Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them, notice he said again, he's done this before. He took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And then three days later, he will rise again. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) What a presumptuous way to begin a conversation, right? If our kids come to us in that same matter, the the response is oftentimes, let's rephrase that question, right? Dad, I want you to do whatever I ask. Ready? And no. The answer is automatically no, right? But Jesus is patient with the disciples, right? He is engaging with them in conversation and and he he asks them, he says, what do you want me to do for you? If I was asking, if I was answering that question, it'd be with a huge roll of the eyes, right? But I can imagine a smirk across Jesus's face because he knows what's gonna happen. He knows that this is an opportunity to teach and to grow them. He asks, and they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. Right? I think it's fascinating. Fascinating that at, right after Jesus has just told them that he is going to die on the cross, be beaten and flogged, that they're turning around and asking Jesus that if we can be uh, at your right and your left in glory. He's like, I'm not going to be in glory. I'm going to be dead. Right? This is what we just talked about. But I think what, the, the, what Mark, the author of this text, is, is highlighting is that the, the disciples didn't understand that Jesus was talking about himself. You see, in, that, in the text right before, in 30, 32 through uh, 34, Jesus is he's walking with them. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered. He changes to third person, doesn't he? As if, as if we is different than the son of man. And they don't get it. They don't get that he is the son of man. So they're like, uh, on response, in response to this story of the son of man going to the cross and dying, they're like, cool story, Hansel, but, uh, but what does that mean for us, right? It sucks for that guy, but, but that's not our story, right? And Jesus says to them, says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What he's saying is, can you drink the cup of death? Can you take on the burdens of the sins of the world? And what they hear is, can you handle the responsibility of being in power and authority at the right hand of of the, the new emperor or new king? And they're like, heck yeah, we can. We got this. And so they answer, we can And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, meaning that they will die. He's he's prophesying before them that they will go to their death for this thing called the gospel. And they will be baptized with the spirit like like Jesus is baptized with the Holy Spirit. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. And when the 10 heard this, they became indignant with James and John, calling him to accountability. And Jesus called them all together for a teaching moment. And he he said, you know that those who who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first 
must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, ser- to serve, but to be served. Not, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, this is one step closer to Jerusalem where he would die. As they came to Jericho, as the disciples, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd, they were leaving the city and a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called him. They called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He is calling you. And so throwing off his cloak, notice the urgency, notice the, the, the passion, the desire, the, the, um, the excitement. He threw off his cloak. He jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. And Jesus asked him the question, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus said, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The blind man's request was granted, but the disciple's request was refused. Not just refused, but they got a stern talking to by their teacher. Right? If anybody should be granted special favor... To, to, for the request to be answered, it would be the disciples, right? They've, they've given up everything. They've left their father and their mother. They've left their families. They've left everything to come and follow Jesus. They've been walking with him. They've sat by, the, sat by camp fireside. They've, they've made meals together. They have shared in fellowship. They've probably had like burp and fart contests with each other. I don't know. Uh, but they're, they're like really close with this guy. He's like, they're like on the inner circle with Jesus, And yet this this blind beggar who doesn't know anything about Jesus other than what he's heard, the things, the miracles that he's done, he's heard things here and there about Jesus, but he doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus personally. He's never had a conversation. Yet the disciples get refused and this blind beggar receives his sight. What is the difference between these two stories? See, what Mark is doing here and the way that he arranges the text, the way that he puts these two stories together and links them by, the, by that question is that he's trying to teach us not just, not selfishness, but humility. He's trying to teach us the bedrock and foundation of this Christian movement moving forward. Humility. Right, humility is built all the way back into the, what Ryan read before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Have no other God before me. And the second commandment in the New Testament is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Built into that love is humility, is putting ourselves and our needs lower than the others. 
I mean, just look at Jesus' life, right? He didn't come in, in, some, in glory. He didn't come as, the, as a conquering king as he might have deserved. He came as a, as a, 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 a poor, shepherd, or a, a poor uh, carpenter's son from a no-name town called Nazareth where the idiom of the time was nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing of any importance comes from Nazareth. He came from a, a broken line of David. There's nothing, nothing mag- majestic about the position that he came in. He's trying to teach them before they leave, before he leaves and they are given this authority over um, the, the message of the gospel to proclaim it to the world. He's trying to instill in them the foundation of humility. Humility will be the thing that distinguishes them from the rest of the authority, from the rest of the, the, the political powers of the world. Humility will be the thing that distinguishes them from other movements of faith. So it's important, it's imperative that, it's, that the disciples understand this concept. In fact, all throughout uh, chapter 10, chapter 10 is kind of devoted in Mark's gospel towards humility. We see just before this, Jesus is teaching and, and uh, somebody asks him about divorce. And if, 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 I'm, if I'm divorced or, um, and I get remarried, who, who's gonna be my wife in heaven? Is it both? And Jesus is like, no. There, in fact, there's no marriage in, in heaven because it's not about you. It's not about your own pleasures or your own desires or your own um, things that you want to accumulate. It's about me. It's not about you at all. In fact, I think this is uh, one of the most fascinating, maybe one of the most telling um, things about our faith as Christians as opposed to the other world religions. The reason why I believe that our, that our faith as Christians is, is the real and true faith is our understanding of heaven. That it's not about us at all, right? If I was gonna create and, and make up my own religion, I would probably make heaven, the place I'm gonna spend the most amount of time, the exact place that I wanna be. It would be full of all of the pleasures, all of the desires, all of the things that I could ever hope for or imagine would be stockpiled there in eternity. In fact, the Christian understanding of, of, of heaven is we've, we've kind of co-opted it a little bit and kind of made some of that for ourselves with the, the mansions in heaven and the streets of gold. That's not really what it's about at all. It's, if we look really truly look at, at the scriptural understanding of heaven, it is all about worshiping God. 100% about worshiping God. And, and in that fullness of worship with God, we receive back the fullness of life and joy. That is the depiction of heaven. And so in, in chapter 10, verse one through 12, he's saying, it's not about you at all. Even heaven, even eternity is not about you. 10, uh, chapter 10, the next story that we see in, Matthew, in Mark's gospel is that Jesus is, is rebuking the disciples for turning away the children, right? They're like, Jesus is so important. He doesn't have time for you, little kiddos. And Jesus is like, no, that's not it at all. If you want to be Great, in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like these little ones. You have to be more like them, not, not pushing them away, not because you're uh, more evolved, that you're more, uh, you have a better understanding of logic than them, you're not better than them. In fact, their humility is something that you ought to have. And then the story of the rich young man um, comes up in, in our text. 
in 17 through 27. And this rich man has all of the things. He has all the possessions. He does all the right things. And Jesus calls him out and says, if you want to, if you want to be the, the greatest, you have to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Maybe a, a, a slight reflection in that Harvard study, right? That your life ought to not be about you if you want to, to receive the kingdom of heaven, it ought to be about the other. That ought to be the focus. So Jesus is, he's teaching his disciples about humility and Mark is picking up on this. But these guys don't get it. Even after all of those things, the disciples are not figuring out this humility thing. And so I, I, find, I find three things in this passage in 30, uh, 32 through 52 that we understand about humility through this text. The first, we understand positional humility. Positional humility. The blind beggar, all that he desired was sight. All that he desired was to see the goodness of God. He hadn't, he hadn't been in relationship with God. He hadn't been in relationship with Jesus. But what he did, what he was able to do is not just ask for sight, but, but in the midst of asking for sight, he called out to the son of David, have mercy on me. He recognized that Jesus was not just able to heal his physical ailment, but able to do something deeper within his soul to provide him with mercy. He was placing himself at a low position to say that I, I don't have it figured out. I don't have the ability to heal and fix myself. Have mercy on me. And then he calls him by son of David. Son of David is the, the highest name in humanity that Jesus could, could have received. Not just son of man, but son of David, son of the Davidic king, son of the line of Messiah. This is a high position to be called son of David. So the blind beggar, he puts himself as low as he can and he puts Jesus as high as he can. I think we are called to recognize positional humility. Not like the disciples who were presumptive in their nature to, to say that I am worthy of this high position. I'm gonna place myself just below you. Like you're gonna be up here. We recognize Jesus, you're better than us. I mean, you've like, you've like cast demons out. We don't do that, right? You've like multiplied fishes and loaves. That's awesome. But can we, but we're like right there with you, Jesus. We're like pretty much, we're, we're on the close to the same level. So can we, since we're like your inner, inner circle, we're like your favorite, can, can we be like on your left and your right? Like this, this presumption that yes, God is high, but we are also up there too. John Wesley says in one of his sermons, he says, oh, beware, do not seek to be something. Let me be nothing and Christ be all in all. You see, I think we spend most of our lives trying to be something, right? We go through school, all elementary school, all middle school, all high school, all college, preparing to be something, right? If, you, if your grades are better than the other person, then you're gonna get the scholarship and you're gonna be something. All of, all of that education is built around you being something. 
I mean, it's hard to switch, right? It's hard to switch that when we come into marriage and, and all of a sudden we have, to, uh, we have to lessen ourselves so that we can support and love our, our spouse. And we have a hard time making that switch to, from being all about me and my own success and being something to loving with selfless love that we're called to in, covenant, in the covenant of marriage. And then we start to have kids and it's even harder to switch because, because kids demand all of, our, all of our, ourselves. Right? They demand every bit of selflessness because they can't even function without us. They can't even eat. They can't, they can't change themselves. They can't do anything without us. They require us. And I think marriages fail and I think I think. Uh, hurts happen in the family when we don't have the ability to switch, when we don't understand positional humility, when we don't understand our place in relationship to God and our, our role in loving one another. Philippians 2, 3, Paul hits it on the head when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself. Notice he says others. That is, a, that is an all-inclusive word. He's not, he doesn't uh, specify which others you're supposed to do this for. It is all others that you are, are supposed to have uh, humility and value others above yourself. That means that we are to prioritize others over, uh, or that we are to prior, prioritize God over ourselves, that we are to prioritize uh, the ones that we love over ourselves. We are to prioritize Ready for this? Those who we hate over ourselves. That is a radical, radical understanding of, of, of humility, of positional humility. And I think we must, that must be a foundational bedrock of our faith, of our Christian witness. The second thing that we see in our text is found in verse 41 when, when Jesus gets done talking to, to the two disciples who, who wanted that high position, he, he corrects them and he brings them back into the fold of the rest of the disciples and the other 10 hear what, what these two had done and they, have, they are indignant with James and John. They are brought back into community and the community is able to hold them accountable to that kind of humility. You see, this wouldn't have ever been recognized if they weren't living in community. There, there would be no accountability around their actions or their, their posture if it wasn't for community. It was the community that helps to keep them accountable. If we, church, are not in community, in communion with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ, or and or with the Holy Spirit, then we will never see the error of our ways. We will never see this kind of humility that Jesus is calling us to if we don't have people who love us enough to call us out and say, that was prideful. In a loving and gracious and generous way like Jesus does for the disciples to say, I don't think that that looks like Jesus. And for us to have the humility to, to recognize that and to step back into the favor of God, to step back into alignment with his call. Wesley was really big about class meetings and band groups to, to have people surrounding you who love you so much that can call you on the things uh, that, are, that are broken. 
If you're interested in being a, in a classmate or a band group, I'd love to have a conversation with you because it's, it's just beautiful ways for you to connect and to, to find communal humility, which I think we absolutely need. The third thing that I think we see in this text is political humility. That we, receive, we are called to political humility. I don't mean left and right politics, right? I mean the way that we use our power to influence the world. The way that we use our position to influence those around us who we love, our families, our work, our jobs, uh, our policy and change. The way that we do that ought to be done in humility. If we look back to verse 42 through 45, you see that Jesus called his disciples all together. He called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, right? They have power and they use that power to suppress the other. Their high officials, they exercise authority over them. That there's another party on top of them that use their power and their authority to suppress the other and to rule over them. Verse 43, but not so with you. Not so with you. The way that you influence the world around you ought to look completely different than that. The way that you lean into this authority that I've given you, this this power that I've given you to influence society, to influence your neighbor, to influence your family is not to hold your position over them like James and John desired to do. But if you genuinely care about people, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you take on this political humility, then then people will recognize that you love them more than the position that you're trying to get. You love them more than the power and authority that you possess in this position. If you've ever been in a, in a, a situation where you, you, can, you recognize that someone is a careerist, right? Where they are just trying to make it up the ladder. They're just trying to advance to the next position where they have more authority and more power. When you recognize that person, you recognize that they're not about you, but they're about their position. And you're... The, the way that you respond, the way that the world responds to those people is not to bend over backwards to, 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 to follow them, to, to do the, the directives that they're called to unless you're trying to ride in their coattails, ride in the wake of their success so that you can be successful too, right? But what about the person who loves, loves the person more than the, the position? Maybe one of the greatest examples that I've ever seen in this community, um, if you're connected to the school system at all, you know Walt Winnicky. Man, it breaks my heart that he is, uh, he's retiring after this year, especially that Kate is just about to go to be a, a, a middle schooler at Creekwood Elementary. But Walt Winnicky, man, that, kid, that guy has been in, uh, at Creekwood Elementary for 20-something years as the principal. He has had many opportunities, I'm sure, to move up the ladder, to, to be a, a high school principal where you get paid more, to be an administrator, where you, uh, a, a district administrator where you get paid more. But he loves the kids and the teachers so much at that school, beyond anything else. And if you ask any kid who's been to Creekwood Middle School, anybody been to Creekwood Middle School? Walt Whitaker's the best, didn't he? Yeah. 
These kids would do, and teachers would do anything for him because they know that he would do anything for them. That, that my friends, is how we use political humility. That is how we lead people. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to, to humility. And close with this. And that Harvard study, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is why, friends, is our happiness altered so dramatically by selfless behavior? Why is our world so moved by selfless love? Why are we better as a community when others are selflessly speaking into our lives and we have the humility to receive it? Friends, it is because we were made in the image of God. Because we are imago dei and that is who God is. That is how God leads. That is how God loves by sending his only son, by lowering himself so that we might might see his goodness. Friends, I ask you, are you blinded to the things of God by your own ambition? Or will you step into this vital posture of humility and be given the sight to experience true joy following Jesus with all that you are and all that you have? This is the word of God for you, me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we honor you in this space. We honor you through the word of God. God, would you lead us to deeper humility? 